0: Man, I just got to tell you, I'm really, really excited this morning. And uh, some of you know, I've been, I've been preaching for a few weeks. We're on vacation for for a couple weeks, and then um, had the pleasure of having Rich Kraft here last weekend, and uh, that was really good. But this is this is this is what I love doing. And so to be back up here, I told multiple people this morning, like I, I feel like I've been waiting for this for two weeks. I'm just excited, I'm ready, so um, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, or if you prefer, uh, Malachi, the Italian prophet, <laughs> I love that, Malachi, so if you, if you uh, don't know where it is, turn to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and go back one book, it is the last book in the Old Testament, and uh, that's where we're going to be spending the next six weeks. And um, this is kind of interesting because I personally have never heard a sermon series through the book of Malachi, and I've never taught through it. So I love the challenge of opening up Scripture together, and even opening up to places that we may not usually go, because the cool thing about God's Word is, is there is not one book or section that is less important than the rest. Amen? And so I'm really excited about that. I also, one thing you'll learn about me is I love to teach out of the Old Testament books. And that's something that in a lot of places is, doesn't happen as much anymore as it used to. And we're missing so much if we, if we don't go back and study those. So I'm, I want to encourage you during this time, um, during these six weeks, each week, read through the book of Malachi. Familiar, familiarize yourself with this book with what's going on, with what's taking place. Take some notes, ask some questions. There's four chapters. Four chapters, that's it, okay? Easily read in a week's time. In fact, if you really wanted to push yourself, you could read it once a day. But for our time, I just want to encourage you, read through the whole book of Malachi at least once each week for the next six weeks, and allow God to speak to you through that. Um, One quick thing before we jump into this text this morning, I really want to encourage you, some of you... Got a packet in the mail. Some of you saw a video that I shared about an upcoming opportunity that's starting in July. And uh, just to clarify a couple things, this is a, an additional opportunity to the current Sunday school classes that we teach here. And if you don't know about the Sunday school classes we teach here, I would encourage you to stop by Centerpoint, look at the back of your bulletin, it highlights those. And really the whole point of this is that you would be equipped, that you would be taught beyond just sitting in here and hearing me ramble at you, okay? This is so that you can get a diversity of teaching and understanding of Scripture on specific subject matters. And for the summer months, so the next three months, July, August, and September, the adult ministries team really just wanted to offer something else, not in replacement of, their Sunday school classes will still be going on, but just in addition to, As an opportunity rather than just sit under someone else's teaching for you to participate in that. And so for those three months, we're going to be starting through a little discipleship booklet called Knowing Christ. And the whole point of this is you get together with a group of three or four of you and just walk through this together each week from nine to ten. So the time is already there. All right. If you're planning on being here for church anyway, it's not an extra day in your week and the resources are there and we're going to have... Uh, the chapel set up with tables for the ladies and then we're going to have a classroom for the guys And so I would encourage you to be thinking about that because that's a real neat opportunity for us to put into practice This whole idea of going and being the church Rather than just sitting and being it's it's just a neat chance for that and we understand everyone has busy schedules So if, if you can't make that you're not going to be downcast because of it. All right We're not going to look down on you because of this. But we want to be active in offering you the opportunities and the chances so that you can't come back to us and go, I never had a chance to do this. Okay? So if you're interested in that, okay, if you're interested but have some questions or need some clarification, next Sunday from 10 to 1020, okay, so that time in between Sunday school and the service, we're going to just meet in the chapel and I'm going to be in there, our adult ministries team is gonna be in there, and we're just gonna share with you some of this and answer some of your questions. We'll go through a session of the booklet so you can see and understand what that looks like. So I would just encourage you to stop by there if you can. Like I said, 10 to 10:20, we'll be done, so we can all be in here ready to worship together. But I just wanted to highlight that personally um, because I think it's a neat opportunity, and I'm excited about the chance to see that, see what happens as a result of that. All right. So Malachi, Malachi. As we're thinking about this today and kind of starting this off I uh, was uh, Preparing and came across uh, what I thought were uh, Some potential Diagnosis for you this morning And so I want to see if maybe you fit into e- either of these categories all right the first one I call it ucd It's called unintended complacency disorder Now just out of curiosity, does anyone know, like just offhand, if someone were to come up to you and ask you what the definition of complacency is, would you, would you be able to answer that? Mo- all right, mo- nobody. This is going to be good. Okay. So complacency, here it is, is a feeling of contentment or self-satisfaction often combined with a lack of awareness of pending trouble or controversy. Now I want you to think about that for a second. So complacency is I'm so content, I'm so self-satisfied that there's maybe potential danger running right for me and I have no idea it's coming. And the reality that most of us don't know what complacency would be and we, or we might have a rough idea but aren't really sure emphasizes the reality that we probably, many of us may have UCD, Okay. Unintended complacency disorder And the reason I put unintended there is because the reality is I don't believe that most of us Intentionally live a complacent life I've met people who do But most of us if we're honest are just going about life And we may like life where it's at or we may just not know what's next and so we just become complacent And so I want to draw awareness to that The second one we're going to call it AAD, Okay And that's apathetic attitude disease. Apathetic attitude disease. Now, apathy. Who could define that? Does anyone know what would know just offhand? Alright, see? These are good things. Apathy is a lack of feeling or emotion. Lack of interest or concern. So in other words, complacency is this idea that I'm just, I'm content. I'm self-satisfied and I'm really not even paying attention to what's going on around me because life's good. Life's good. Apathy is, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what happens. I don't care what takes place. I don't care what's coming because I'm apathetic. All right? Now... Apathy is one of those things that develops over time because it's generally a byproduct of hurt or pain or frustration or stress and you become so overwhelmed by this that all of a sudden you you throw your hands up and you go, "I, I don't care. Now, the reason I bring these two up as we jump into the book of Malachi is because it's these very characteristics that were prevalent in the nation of Israel when God sent Malachi, the prophet, to speak directly from God. And as we walk through this, what I want to challenge you with is to evaluate and process of your own life and go, am I in danger or possibly rooted into... Either of these two things. Maybe both. And what we're going to find as we look at this is that we often feel or repeat many of the same things that the Israelites did in this time frame. And so the big idea for today, so this is uh, the main thing. If you don't get anything else out of today's message, I want you to get this. And that is God's deserved glory is not determined by my disinterest or devotion. Get all those D's? Now, the simplicity of this statement is the reality that who God is, His glory, His majesty, His power, His godness, His sovereignty does not change. It does not change. No matter how disinterested I become, no matter how devoted I am, on either end of the spectrum, God doesn't change. Turn to your neighbor and say, God doesn't change. Now this is really important, church. And what we're going to find out is in Malachi, God is pleading with His people And he's speaking a truth to them to say, I am God, and you need to live in a way that shows that I am God. And so we're going to open that up this morning. I want to look firstly at verse one, and then we're going to pray. Before we jump into the rest of chapter 1 this morning Verse 1 of Malachi chapter 1 says The oracle of the word of the Lord To Israel by Malachi Now, this first verse is really important Because this is about all we know In preface to what's about to be said We know that this is a word of who? What does it say? The Lord. Everyone say the Lord. Okay, that's really important. This is not Malachi's somehow speaking a speech because he's passionately invigorated by what's going on. This is God who has said, this is important, you need to hear it. Now, the other important aspect of this is, who is God speaking through? Shout it out. Who's he speaking through? Malachi. Okay, everyone say Malachi. Malachi. Malachi is the vessel or the prophet in this day and time in which God is using to speak directly to his people. Now, this is an Old Testament aspect of this that, honestly, if I'm, if I'm being frank with you, I'm pretty jealous about. Okay? God speaks directly to his prophets and they communicate directly from God. This is a word of the Lord. Now, we have, praise God, we have his written word. Right here. Okay? And if you ever doubt or question or think, Man, if God only spoke directly to us, we would do what He says. Read the Old Testament. Okay? You and I have the same tendency. There's no less power in God's spoken word than in His written word. Understand that. Okay? I'm going to repeat that. There's no less power in God's spoken word than His written word. Okay? There's, there's no discrepancy between the two. We, we have to elevate them to the same level. All right? But the reality is, we don't know much about Malachi. There's, there's not much to be known. It doesn't, he doesn't talk about himself in the book. We don't have a background or even a genealogy to say this is where he's come from. And you know what's interesting about that? It's almost like God wanted us to focus less on who was Penning this and more on the message that's being spoken And so the validity of this is not rooted in who malachi is it's rooted in who god is And him speaking through malachi Now the other important aspect in this first verse is who is it being spoken to? Who's it say shout it out what does it say? Israel everyone say israel Okay, this is crucial church It's really, really important that we read this text in the context with which it is written. Not automatically shift to just saying, oh, what is what is this saying to me? Well, you're not going to fully understand the depth of what it's speaking to you unless you first understand what God was saying to his people. And so Israel, if we look all the way back, if you go back to the beginning of time, Israel is a developed nation that God has chosen as his people. And throughout, God makes significant covenants with the nation of Israel. And here at Ephraim, we still believe that God has promises that are yet to be fulfilled for specifically the nation of Israel in the future. And this is important for us to understand because it emphasizes not just the reality of what's taking place, But it emphasizes God's promise and his faithfulness to his people. And we're going to unpack that a little more. Now one thing to understand as we look through this text is more than likely this was written post-exile. Okay, And the reason that we understand it in that way is because there's reference in here to the temple... And there's reference in here to governors, which was usually a Persian term, which would have been employed after Babylon had already taken Israel into captivity. Okay? Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, I, what are you talking about? Basically, I'm going to summarize a lot of church history in a little minute section. Israel was notorious for not doing what God wanted them to do. And they repeated this cycle over and over and over again. If you read the Old Testament, you see that. And you get frustrated with Israel. And eventually, they strayed so far, they were worshipping other gods. And they had put a king over top of them who was not pursuing what God wanted for them. And so God said, I'm going to give you over to your enemies. And they went into Babylonian captivity. And... God eventually delivered them out of that as he does throughout the course of scripture. And they step back and you see Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. And then you see the temple rebuilt and all of this restructuring happening. This was all a result after the Babylonian captivity. One of the most renowned books in the scripture that we reference during that time of captivity is the book of Daniel. Okay? Daniel was part of that. He was in Babylon at the time of The captivity taking place. Okay? So as we understand this, this is happening after the fact. So Israel cannot look back and simply say, we've never seen God show up. They cannot look back and go, God, where have you been all this time? He's proven this over and over and over again. And we're going to see that throughout this book, God coming back to that point. But I want to take a moment and pray this morning. As we understand kind of a little bit of the backdrop behind what we're going to be talking about, and as we jump into this text, this is challenging stuff. And I think it's wise for us to humble ourselves and step out of our comfort zone and enter into this understanding that there's going to be some stuff in here that I may not like to hear. I could tell you from studying it that that's how I have felt. I've wrestled with God on some of this stuff. But understanding who God is and that who he is is not changed by how interested or disinterested I am. So let's just take a minute. We're going to pray. I'm going to just be silent for just a moment or two. I want you to use that time just to pray yourself. Ask God to open your eyes to see this, to understand this, to pursue this well. All right, let's pray, church. Father, we believe that your word is living and active. We believe that there is a message here that we need to hear. And so, God, in the midst of this, I pray that you free us from our tendency to become complacent. Help us to not be apathetic as we come to this text. But bring an understanding, a clearness to this, Lord, that you would... Open our eyes, help us to see, but not just to see, help us to live in a way that results in conviction and challenge and transformation from your word. Father, I praise you that we gather here today as one church, and I pray that this time is not wasted, but Lord, rather you would work in our lives in a way that is seen beyond this building, beyond this place. We commit this all to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see, we're going to start in verse 2. And the first thing we're going to see, note this down, God has proven His love through His faithfulness. God has proven His love through His faithfulness. Let's start in verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say... How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now the first, right out of the gate, what does he say? What is that What is that phrase? Speak it out, what does it say? I have loved you. This is something we quote a lot throughout Scripture. John three, for God so loved the world, and yet, isn't it interesting the people's response to this? Where God says, "I have loved you," and the people basically go, "Really? Come on, God, have have you really, have you really loved us? How have you loved us?" Now this is. When I first read this, I I laughed. Because to us it may seem so obvious as we look throughout the history of Israel. And yet, there was an attitude that communicated, "How, how have you loved us, God? You say you've loved us, but show me how. Now, he goes on and he speaks a specific example about Jacob and Esau. Now, this is a really kind of an interesting story. And to give you a little, I I love, if you've never spent any time studying some of the genealogies in the Old Testament, it's really interesting. And so, Jacob and Esau, we're going to trace back just a little bit, okay, to understand where this is coming from. Jacob and Esau were the sons, the twin sons of Isaac, okay? Now Isaac, if we trace back even further, was the son of Abram or Abraham, And if you go back even further, Abraham was the great, I'm going to to say this, great to the eighth power, okay, so great, great, you get it, great to the eighth power, grandson of Noah, okay, just so you get a little background there. So Abraham stemmed from Shem, the son of Noah, so we're going all the way back to Genesis, and then you have Abraham coming to the picture, and in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless nations upon nations. Well, Abraham went for a long, long time and didn't have any kids. His wife was barren, and he started to question God's faithfulness in the midst of this, and then when he was old in age, God appears and says, you're going to have a kid, and they laughed at God, okay? Okay? Well, then Isaac is born, and later on in that, God, God tells Abraham to test his loyalty to himself. says, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son. What? Well, God ultimately provides a sacrificial lamb, and Abraham is counted as righteous for his faith, trusting that God would raise him from the dead or would accomplish his purposes, his promises in some other way. And so now Isaac has these twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and it says, this takes place in Genesis chapter 25, and it actually says that when they were in the womb, they were fighting with each other. And some of you parents would go, yeah, it doesn't stop at all after they come out of the womb either, does it? Okay? Brothers do that. But there was an even broader case to this, in the sense that as they got older, they continued to fight with each other. And... God had actually promised to them in Genesis 25. If you read this, He said, "The older will serve the younger." This is backwards from is from church from his biblical history. It, It was always the firstborn, and so with twins, it was the first one that left the womb, which in this case happened to be Esau, and Jacob was right behind it, literally grasping his heel. Okay. Well, later on, Jacob uses some crafty means and tricks Esau into selling him his birthright over basically a bowl of stew. And this brings about this lifelong conflict between Jacob's ancestors and Esau's ancestors. Now, later on in Genesis, you see that Jacob is actually renamed Israel. Okay? And so when we're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, anywhere you see that in Scripture, it's talking about the 12 sons of Jacob. And Esau and his family are known as the Edomites. So anywhere you see the Edomites in Scripture, that's traced back to Esau. Now, when you see this, when you first read this, you go, What in the world, God? You say you've loved your people and yet... Esau, I have hated? But we easily get stuck on that, and this statement here is really an emphasis less on God's wrath and more on God's faithfulness to his people. And to emphasize this a little more, if you jot down Psalm 137, 7, David recounts this, and he says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem how they, they being the Edomites, said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And actually, one more place I want to take you, if you put your finger in Malachi and flip back a few books to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 35, I'm going to read this because it gives some background and some highlighting to the reality that was going on in this tension between the Edomites and the Israelites. Ezekiel 35, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Now this was well known as Edomite territory. So Mount Seir is another place you can insert Edomites or the tribe of Esau. And prophecy against it. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the broader question is, God, why would you do this? Verse 5, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword. At the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I will cut off from it all who come and go. And I will fit its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And he goes on from there and goes into more detail about the sins that were committed against the Israelite people. From the Edomites. And this is emphasizing this step that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. He's consistent in this. And we read in a narrow framed mindset and go, God, how could you hate these people? And the reality of it remains. That God had. Every justification just merely in the fact that he was God and even more so in the fact that he's faithful to his people and to his promises. God has proven his love through his faithfulness time and time again. And I would encourage you, if you encounter a section of scripture like that and you go, what? God, how how does this make sense with your character? Stop and dig deeper. Many people have walked away from the faith because they can't rectify their idea of who God should be with what the Bible says He is. Now, I want you to understand when I say their idea of who God should be. Okay? It's a challenging reality to struggle with. And we have to struggle with it in the context that it's written. Not our own human perspective alone. Secondly... God deserves respect and obedience because he is God. Now, some of you will read something like that and you go, what? Now, I have to earn this. And you're right, you do, because you're not the creator of the universe. Okay? In fact, you're not the creator of you. And there is, should be a part of what we believe and how we live and how we act that resonates back to this reality of who God is. Look at, with me at verse 6 in, a, in a Malachi chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord? of host and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you says the lord now i want to give you 3 observations from this text about our state okay as humanity the first one being as humans we are Quick to serve or honor our earthly masters, but slow to fear God. In other words, it's really easy for us to essentially bow down to the demands of our boss or our parents or other authority figures in our life. Whether we want to or not, in many ways we're forced to because that's what you're supposed to do yet we do not apply the same reality to our relationship with God. We're really quick to serve or honor our earthly masters, whoever that might be, and yet really struggle to show a fear of God. The second thing in the midst of this, as humans we often fail to see where we fall short in worship and devotion. Did you see the questions that they kept asking? God, how have we, how have we profaned you? How have we wronged you? How have we done this? They, they, they were oblivious. And ultimately it stemmed back to the fact that they were half serving God. They were half fearing God. They, they were struggling with this idea that I can, I can just bring the second best. You, you know that? That livestock, I, I worked hard for that. And it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, this one just has a spot on it. It's it's not a big deal. God won't care. I'll bring that. And God's saying, this says so much more about your heart condition than what you see. And he even says in there, bring that to your governor. How is he going to bring that to your earthly master? How is he going to think of you? And the whole reality comes back to that first observation that, we wouldn't think twice about bringing the half-best to our earthly master because there's immediate ramifications. But when it comes to God, oh, God, you know what? I've, 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 deserved, I've earned this. I've deserved this. I've, I've done all these things for you, so give me a break. And it's a slow fade, church, that we become complacent, we become apathetic, and we stop fearing God. The third observation in the midst of that section is that as humans, we expect to be able to give a little and gain a lot. Verse 9 says, And now entreat the favor of God that He may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will He show to you any of you? Will He show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Do you give this tiny bit and expect? Expect God to give? take out all the stops? Is that what we're expecting of him? I think Israel got to a point where that was the case. They'd seen him do miraculous things. They'd seen him deliver them from captivity in Egypt. They'd seen him deliver them from captivity in Babylon. And now they're going, we've got God on our side. Why does it matter how we worship? Why does it matter how devoted we are? And God's saying, guys, refocus. Who do you think I am? You treat your governors and your earthly leaders with more honor, fear, and respect than you treat me, the creator of the world, the sustainer of life. Now, as I was thinking about this and the reality of how, how you illustrate this best, I thought back immediately to my days growing up on the farm And this reality, from the time I was eight, I I was fixing fence. That was what I started doing. Which if you've, I'm convinced that everyone should have to spend like a summer fixing fence just for character building. Because it's really, (laughs) it could be frustrating, but it can also be really rewarding, depending on what kind of fence you're fixing or building. But one of the interesting things is that when I would go out to check cows or fix fence or whatnot, the cows were always either on one side of the fence or the other. In fact, in my entire time dealing with livestock, there was only one time that there was a calf stuck in between the two fences. And that was because I had a steer my first year showing who thought it was a great idea to try to jump over the tie rack and get to where all the feed was. And so we would come out to the barn and he would be stuck, legs hanging over, just waiting for someone to try and help him. Now, you try to move a 1,100-pound steer... Who's stuck off of a tie rack? It's really obnoxious. He did this multiple times. It's the only encounter I've ever had with that. But most of the time, you go out there, they're on one side or the other. So if that's the case, why so often do we just sit on the fence and say, well, you know what, today I'm going to serve God, but I don't want to let go of the things over here too much. I'm, I'm going to stay right here. It's really uncomfortable. And it would be even more uncomfortable for the livestock we were dealing with because it was barbed wire. But the reality is, church, that we do the same thing. We we don't we don't tend to pick a side. We tend to straddle the fence and go. I don't want to I don't want to give everything I have to the Lord, but you know I I need to give him some because that's what I'm supposed to do. But I I I still want to kind of live in my life over here. And it's the same reality that God was confronting. With the churches in Revelation. When he says, you're lukewarm. You're stuck in the middle. You're, you're not worth anything in that. Okay? we, we got to think about this. Romans 12 tells us that we need to prevent our, present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Which is our spiritual act of worship. It comes back to that devotion. Which side of the fence are you on? Or are you stuck in the middle? If so, get off the fence. You're breaking it. Okay? The third thing, as we think about this passage in Malachi, is that God's name will be magnified. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. My name will be great. My name will be feared. These are things that resound in this section of this text. And it's really simple to understand what God is saying. One way or another, God's name will be praised. And church, the reality is, the only people missing out on the blessing of God are those who choose not to praise it. Okay? If that's what we choose to do We're the ones who are going To suffer as a result There is no question for God here It will happen The question should remain Will you be one who magnifies and fears The name of God A question we could ask is What is my attitude saying About my view of God what is my attitude saying about my view of God? We might say, I love Jesus, but fill in the blank. I, I love Jesus, but the minute you ask me to, to, to give something, I'm out of here. I, I can't do that. I love Jesus, but uh, someone else share their faith with that person. I, I, I love Jesus, but I, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing over here. What does is, what is my attitude say about who I see God as? And this reality that he highlights where he says, you profane the Lord's table, you cheat God. I don't know about you, I don't want to be one of those people who profanes the name of the Lord or cheats God of all the beings in the world to cheat Or to profane, speak badly of, not obey, follow after? Why in the world would we ever want that to be God? So how do we apply this, church? There's a lot here. I want to give you two things. The first one, stop expecting to experience the full blessing of the Lord when you're unwilling to honor Him. Israel had a bad habit of this. You look throughout the book of Judges and you see this. You look at the, through the Exodus, you see this. You throughout their whole journey and you find yourself going, Why can't you get it? And we could say the same thing about us right here today. We have to stop expecting to experience the full, understand, the full blessing of the Lord. God is faithful to His people. And we believe that if you believe in the name of Jesus to be saved... That that's secure, that's firm. That, yo, that's No one can take that away. No one can take you out of the Father's hand. That doesn't mean that you're going to get to experience the fullness of the entirety of what He's offering you. Because how we live and how we choose to live and who we choose to honor determines a lot about how much of that blessing we're going to actually be able to experience. I want to give you just a snippet example of that. In my week just this last week. And I'm going to try really hard not to get choked up by this. But it was a God moment. (laughs) So I've been trying to sell. We've remodeled our house. And I had extra flooring. I've been trying to sell it for several months. And it just hadn't worked. And I had someone who was really interested. I thought was going to buy it. And then uh, she, she wasn't able to. And so I still didn't have any interest. Well, she contacted me this last week. And said, oh, do you still have this flooring? I said, yeah, I do. She said, I'll take it. But it's supposed to rain on Friday. It, it didn't work out. She was going to come get it Thursday, and I wasn't going to be home till late. And so I said, well, hey, if it's raining, we'll just bring it to you on Friday. We can load it up in our SUV and just bring it to you. So we loaded up, and we, we did. And I, as I'm driving, it's one of those moments where there is a clear prompting from God. You need to, you need to, you need to talk with this lady. You, you, need, to, you need to ask her. Some, you need to share the gospel with this lady. So I show up. She's really friendly. We get all our flooring in and get it put away, and um, she shook my hand and getting ready to leave. I said, "Hold on a sec. I I just have to ask. Is there something? Is there something going on that I could, I could pray for or encourage you in?" And her eyes get huge. She says, "How did you know?" And she goes, Well, What's wrong with me?" I said, "I, I don't know." And she says, well, did you look it up? I said, no, ma'am, I just, I've I, I just prompted, I feel like I need to ask you this. And she said, well, I, I, just, I just had a CT today, and I have lung cancer. And so I shared the gospel with this lady, and we talked about this, and she's in tears. She's going, I, this is crazy. And I said, no, it's not. But I want you to think back. Every step of that, I was, I was. I came to the car and I'm talking with Haley about this, and I'm going. She was going to get this flooring a month ago, and she didn't know this. She didn't. She didn't know she had cancer at that moment. And then even Thursday, if if I had been home, she she hadn't had that test. She didn't know she had cancer yet. But that day, Friday, that morning she had a CT scan that revealed that she has lung cancer. She has no idea what the, what's gonna happen after this. No idea. Now in that moment I easily could have been on my way, had my thing to do, get done, move on and move past that and ignore the prompting of God. And I would have lost the chance to experience the blessing of seeing him work right in front of me. There's nothing I could have known to expect that that was the day that she received that bad news. She was not going to tell me that information. And church, we have the opportunity to experience the same blessing of that. But we've got to step out of our complacency, our apathy, and say, God, you're bigger than any of this. You're even bigger than the boundary of me not knowing these people. And then allow him to work in that. And then you get to see. And let me tell you, it just increases your faith. Because in all the chances in the world, all of those things fit into place like it was the other day. Would not have happened if it hadn't been for the hand of God to say, this lady needs to hear the gospel. And the second point and final point of application, I want to encourage you, church, to be a verse 10 kind of person. Where God pleads, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Be someone who holds people accountable to honoring God in everything. To recognizing His majesty, His power, His glory. And trusting Him and moving forward. Be a catalyst for that. Don't be the one that God says amongst, Oh, I wish there was just one. Be that one. Church, I want to encourage you to really read through this and take this to heart. This is challenging stuff. And it's convicting stuff because it meets us right here where we need to recognize that God is so much bigger than what we can think or imagine. We need to pursue Him in that. Now in closing today, rather than have the team up here, I want to I play this song. And this is a song that I've heard. Oops, just a second, guys. I, I want, this is a song that I've heard and has become one of my favorites. And it's called Over All I Know. And it simply highlights the reality of who who God is, and challenges us to think about this. And we're going to have this song be the closing song throughout the six weeks. But here's the challenge I want to give you. As you're listening to this song, and as we sing it in coming weeks, I want to challenge you to ask yourself the question, what is it in my life that I need God to be over? I need God to be over this, whether it's, I need God to be over my marriage, I need God to be over my kids, I need God to be over my job, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. And I want you to set a goal to write down one of those a week, at least one. And when we get to the final six weeks and we go to close, I'm going to have a couple microphones up here and I want you to come and I want you to share what it is that you have been praying for that six weeks that God would be over in your life. And the reason I want to do this as a church is because so often we go about not recognizing the areas that we're each struggling in. That we're longing and we need prayer in. And I want that to become visible for us together. And I'm going to be doing this too. And then we're going to share that. And then we're going to challenge each other at the end of this six weeks to commit to praying for each other and pursuing God and recognizing that he has already promised to be over all But we have to honor and glorify his name. So let's take a minute. We're going to listen to this song. And I want you to think about that and write that down on something. And then keep that list for the next six weeks. And then I'll come up and close us in prayer.